hi, everybody. Hi, hi. Okay. So, right, I'm usually on stage uh, doing some, some part icebreaker, right? Uh, so, today is going to do, I'm going to, I mean, you know, I'm doing something different, uh, but uh, hopefully it will still be a bit some part in uh, some part. Okay. We shall see. Uh, okay. Now, uh, what's significant about the 14th of August? Today is our wedding anniversary. And uh, I was joking, like, so is this like my anniversary gift? You know, you give me the mic and you ask me to talk for 45 minutes. I'm not sure it's a good gift or not, right? But at least he gave me something because I'm not giving him anything. Yeah, I don't know if a break from the pulpit is considered a gift to him or not. Okay, okay. Uh, but speaking about anniversaries, right? We actually just realized that two weeks ago, it was Sungai Bulo's two-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the week that Lionel preached, right? And uh, we weren't in because of some COVID concert. And uh, nobody said anything. I think y'all didn't realize, right? Nobody realized. So it's like, uh, it shows that we are really good at this anniversary thing. Hey, but yeah, happy anniversary, Sungai Bulo, right? Two years. So that means uh, Sungai Bulo is a toddler now. Hopefully, it's a uh, toilet train, sleeping through the night, you know, all the teething problems. Hopefully, uh, have, uh, are passed behind us, uh, right? Okay, uh, let's get into things. Uh, recap. Yo, yeah, it's up already. I'm not clicking through my slides, so. Uh, we've covered a total of 12 sermons uh, on the kingdom of God. As you can see, eight of them were in season one, which, is, uh, which was in January to February. I don't know if y'all can uh, remember, right? Give a bit of a visual reminder. Season two started in, uh, Lionel's shaking head. Uh, season two started in July uh, with a bit of breaks here and there. We've had four so far, and mine's the fifth. And I think we'll have another, I think four more, right? Okay. Uh, I was saying, right, that these look a bit like album covers. And so we're having a bit of fun, right? to kind of like assign genres to them. And uh, so this one is a punk album. This is a classical album. This is like some indie singer-songwriter. Lionel's one is definitely a metal album. Right? Uh, Henrik's one is uh, Taylor Swift. Right? Yeah. Okay, but... Uh, so that's just a bit of a warm-up. Uh. But before I start, right, I think that would be good to clarify this again, I think in case some of us are not clear. The kingdom of God, which we've been talking a lot about, is not heaven. Okay, they're not the same thing. They're two separate and distinct things. I think that we kind of conflate them sometimes. Okay, so what are they? Let me define them for you. Uh. So heaven is the unseen realm, the spiritual realm where God and angels and all the done line spiritual things reside. Okay? And earth, earth is your tangible physical dimension uh, in which we, along with all other material creation, reside, right? And so the idea that heaven and earth, uh, actually, I think we tend to think of like heaven as being up there and that earth is like in the middle and then hell is below, right? Uh, like a quay lapis. But that's not actually how the biblical authors understood the world to be. Okay, this kind of separation is actually a Greek idea, and it came from Plato. 
the biblical view is that the physical world is permeated by the spiritual and there are occasional points of intersection between the two. You know, think of them as portals. Uh. And I think our Asian cultures, we do kind of have the understanding, but in church, uh, I think we get a little bit muddled and fuzzy, right? So we're not very clear on that. Uh, it shows in our language, uh, we always talk about, oh, you know, like the big guy upstairs. You know, uh, there's no upstairs. Okay, heaven is not upstairs, right? Uh, it's permeated. And uh, we talked about the points of intersections. Uh. What are those points? Okay, let's do a bit of revision. Because uh, Pastor Fergus talked about it three weeks ago uh, in God with us, right? What are the points of intersection? You can tell me. If you're actually, if, if you can kind of trace back, do you all remember? What's the first point of intersection? The train lines one, yes, the train lines one. Ah. First one is, yes, the altar. Oh, I forgot about the altar. Yes, the altar. Then the tabernacle, right? And then the temple. And then it was Jesus. Prophets, yes. Oh, yeah, prophets. Wow, okay. Like, no talk notes. Prophets, and then Jesus. And after Jesus, it's Holy, Holy Spirit in? Holy Spirit in us. Yes, we are the new tabernacle. We are the new point of intersection, right? We are um, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is through us that God is establishing his dominion over the earth, which was his intention from way back in Genesis. That was always his plan, right? And that's and it is this dominion through us that is called the kingdom of God. So do you understand now what is the kingdom of God? It is God ruling through us, right? And that's why Luke 17, 2 says, the kingdom of God is within you and I. Okay, the kingdom of God is not up there. It's not um, like separate and like some faraway place. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is within you and I. Okay, we're clear? Okay, let's go to context and background to my parable. Today, I'm covering the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Now, it's the second in a series of seven parables in Matthew 13. Uh, recorded in Matthew to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. So, my parable is located in between the parable of the sower, which uh, Zillow will be handling next week. Woo! Yeah. And the parable of the mustard seed. So, it's a bit of a sandwich here, right? Uh, which um, Pastor Fergus covered, I think, in the second sermon of this series. See, grows and grows, that one, yeah. Uh, taken together, right, you can see this, this sequence. There's a very strong agricultural motive. Okay, we can come back to later. But you can see that like, the kingdom of God is something that is uh, growing. It takes time. Okay, another thing to note, right, is that the parable of the sower, and my parable, wheat and weeds, are the only two parables that Jesus gave himself gave an interpretation. Of. So, uh, yeah, yeah, lucky us. Uh, we got like a bit of help there. <laughs> the rest had to kind of like handle it on their own. Now, okay, before I get into my main point, uh, uh, oh, wait, I forgot. You're supposed to read, right? Okay, let's read the text. Okay, we start from 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, 
didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both go together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then we go now to the interpretation in 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, just pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Father, we just pray that uh, your word will go forth and uh, it will be received by soft and attentive hearts, Lord. We just pray that it would take seed, um, it will sprout, take root, and that uh, it will bear a harvest for you, Lord. So we just commit every one of us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now before I get into my main point, uh, there's a general remark that I like to make, which is uh, notice that servants sleeping is mentioned here, right? In the same way, uh, for Henrik's uh, sermon, his ten virgins slept, right? And the interesting thing is that uh, in neither case is the sleeping rebuked. It's not like, oh, you sleep, you cannot sleep. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that uh, it's not bad to sleep when you need to. We're humans. Our bodies have real limits and needs. So please sleep when you're tired. God does not expect us to be infinite and tireless um, the way he is. Uh. Which is my way of saying, uh, so if you need to sleep during my sermon, <laughs> I will not be offended because, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Uh. Okay? I think I see some of your closing eyes already, actually. But, for the rest of you all who stay awake, um, here are my three points. First one is God is good. The second one is God is slow. And the third one is God is just. Very basic. Okay, I'm basic. All right, let's go to the first point. First thing I want to draw out is this, uh, that God is good. But it's actually such a church cliche, right? We hear it all the time. We sing it all the time. Yeah, actually, yeah. I told the worship team, um, they asked me on a theme. I said, like, uh, goodness of God, lah. you know. I think I got a million songs to choose from, right? But I think that uh, Sarah's song selection was, uh, was really good, actually, very, very timely. And uh, we hear preachers use that call and respond all the time, right? I mean, okay, it's been a while, like, you know, say God is good all the time, right? Okay, yeah, we say it like we mean it. Like, God is good. And all the time. Yeah, we so, I mean, how many of you grew up kind of like saying that in church, right? Does it bring back some of the memories, right? 
the problem is that many times I feel it's just lip service, right? You know, it's very easy to say and it's like automatic. But we don't really orientate our hearts and our lives as if God is truly good. You know, if we truly believe it, the way we would live would be we'd be open-handed, we'd be generous, we'd be assured, you know, in in reflection of the way that our Heavenly Father is. But we have to ask ourselves instead, like, do we live that way or are we kind of like more in survival mode? I mean, you have this kind of like, I need to look out for myself because nobody's going to look out for me, right? It's me against the world. I need to jaga sendiri. You know, are we small-hearted? Are we calculative? Not just with money, but with other resources. Uh? Are we inhospitable, mean-spirited, unfriendly? Are we defensive? Are we territorial? Because there's always kind of like a, a siege mentality or, you know, a not enough mentality. Uh? So it's one thing to say that God is good. It is another thing to list it out. You know, saying it's easy, uh? So I think that we need to engage with this truth that God is good. You need to question it so that you come out really knowing it. I think that for many of us, there are times when we actually secretly feel that God isn't really good or that he isn't really there for me. Uh, in fact, sometimes you may even feel the opposite. I feel that God feels cruel to me. But we don't entertain those thoughts for long, right? I think we're trained in church to just kind of like push them away and go like, no, 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 God is good. I'm sure there's a reason. And we bypass that question. But it's a can response. And the very fact that that question arises means that we need to have the courage to sit in it and we need to wrestle with that question and not ignore it. We also need to be okay with taking time to find the answer. These things don't resolve kind of like Immediately. Slow God. Yeah. And when I think of people who have walked out of church, I think that's very easy for us to say, oh, they just didn't have enough faith. But I think that many times, it's because they couldn't find the space and the safety to honestly and openly deal with their doubts and their uncertainty about God's character. So we see this in their parable. Okay? The servant, they see the wheat growing. They see something bad. And then they ask, they ask the farmer, didn't you sow good seed? Where are the weeds coming from? And the question behind that is this, are you really a good farmer? How come you sow bad seed, right? But there's bad crop. Oh, sorry, how come you sow good seed, but there's bad crop, right? When we see brokenness, when we see things that are wrong in the world, and we wonder, like, did God put them there? Why does he allow it? The parable makes it clear. God is good. God does not sow bad seed. Evil is from the evil one, right? But evil sometimes infiltrates good. And so the bad seeds are sown at night, pretending to be part of the farmer's seed. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the bad seeds. Now, in older translations, right, um, the, word, the word that is used for wheat here is actually tear. I think some of you would have, have that in your translation, right? Now, what is tares? Tares is actually a specific weed. It's a type of, of, of weed. Okay, weed. Weeds are just, you know, generic. 
uh, tare is a weed that grows in many of the same places as wheat does, and they look very alike in the early stages of growth. You see, ah, here's a picture. This is a young tare, a young wheat. And you can see very similar. In fact, before the head or the fruit forms, uh, the leaves are almost identical. Yeah, I know the orientation is a bit different, lah, but you know, be before this, the, the seed heads form, they're very identical. Lah. Uh, it's only upon maturity that it's uh, easier to tell apart. The seeds are different color, you can tell, right? Now, uh, in some areas today, tares are actually called false wheat. And the flour that's made out of their seeds, uh, it tastes bitter uh, and it's actually poisonous. So if you eat enough of it, it's fatal. Yeah. So it's uh, very, very apt for the parable. Um, I was reading an article, right, that traced the history of pears long association with wheat cultivation. So they've kind of like always been found in the same place. And it says this, uh, where there are tares, there's treachery and toxicity. Because of the insidious way that tares infiltrated wheat cultivation and tainted the harvest, uh, before modern, modern sorting machines were invented, the contamination of wheat and tare seeds was a very serious matter because separating the two was very difficult. In fact, there was a uh, Roman law that forbade the sowing of tares among the wheat in the field of an enemy as an act of sabotage. You know, even if they're enemy and you want to sabo him, the law says you can't because uh, it was such a serious matter. And it suggests that the illustration that Jesus used was a very plausible one. So that's the background. Uh, back to my point, uh, which is that we should not be surprised when evil sprouts and appears because there is an enemy that is actively seeking to cause treachery and toxicity. God has no drop of evil in him. He sows good seed into the world. But we need to know this firsthand. You cannot hear me say it secondhand. This is for you to take to the good farmer this is for you to, to go and ask him, like, are you really good? Where are these weeds coming from? You must let him answer that to you directly. Okay, let's move on to my second point. Yeah. So God is good. God is slow. So we see this in verse 28, right? When the owner's servant asked, do you want us to go and pull them, the them being the weeds, up? And he answered, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. So we can see that the farmer is taking a slow approach to getting weed, uh, rid of the weeds. Uh, and Jesus himself actually practiced this with Judas, who is probably as good an example of a tear as you can find, right? And instead of exposing and weeding Judas out, Jesus let him just continue to grow among the disciples until his fruit became evident for all to see. And can you imagine the restraint that takes? Can we do that? Can you tahan or not? I mean, like, I think most of us, right, you itchy fingers. Pimple also must pick, right? Scab also must pick, right? This one is like, you, you cannot sit still. So what, can you imagine, like, if you're one of the workers, you know, you... And so you want to go into the field and just start chaboting, pulling it out, right? 
what will happen? Okay, you only need to look at church, church history to see how damaging that can be. Uh. Uh, in his sermon two weeks ago, Lionel preached, uh, he was talking about if the kingdom of God suffers violence. He talked about the Spanish Inquisition, uh, right? Uh, if you weren't there, the Spanish Inquisition was this movement uh, to guard the purity of the church against heretics and false doctrine, which sounds like a good thing, right? Except that they ended up executing, what, 32,000 people in the span of eight years. Uh, and Lionel did a math. It was, what, one execution every two days. But I was saying that maybe they didn't execute people on Sunday, la, so Sundays more. But that's not the point. Uh. And um, there are actually many other examples in church history. Uh. One of it that I looked up was like the French Wars of Religion, uh, which is in, in the 1500s where Catholics and Protestants decided to see who could kill each other more. And so, estimate between two to four million people died as a result from the violence and the famine and the disease that, that came about uh, as a direct result. And so, as Lionel said, uh, you know, let us not, in our zeal to defend God, end up causing violence to his kingdom, uprooting the weak instead. Okay? Live with patience. I think we also need to be careful in categorizing who the weak and the weeds are among us. Remember, it isn't easy to tell them apart. We may think we know, but actually it's not easy. Uh, in fact, I'd like to make a point about that. Um, so these seven kingdom parables in Matthew comes right after Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees in chapter 12, so the chapter before. And in it, Jesus calls the Pharisees bad trees and who produce bad fruit. You can see agricultural motive there, right? Uh, he also calls them a brood of vipers, implying that they were offspring of the serpent, i.e., you know, the devil. And in Matthew 15, after that, he goes on to say that every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots in reference to them. So he's calling them all this. And why am I saying this? I'm saying this because the Pharisees were the religious elite. And uh, they were, by all accounts, actually sure that they would be counted as wheat. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Now, Romans 8, 18 says that the children of God have yet to be revealed. So we actually don't know who the wheat are. It's not yet made known but we also do know, Jesus warned that there will be surprises. He says in Matthew 7, right? That not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. In fact, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, the point of the parable is that those who actually inherit the kingdom are those that, you know, practice hospitality, who care for the needy, the sick, and the vulnerable. And what's interesting here, it actually doesn't mention whether they confess Christ or not. <laughs> I saw the eyebrow. Now, of course, we need to take the whole counsel of Scripture into consideration. Now. But this is food for thought. And why I'm saying this is, is because we need to make sure that we're not carrying the same false sense of security that the Pharisees had. That, oh, of course, we are the children of God. Of course, we are the weak. The weak, the children of God, are those that actually do the will of the Father. Okay? But that's just a side point. The main point of this parable 
is not to speculate on who's in and who's out, who's wheat and who's weeds. Okay? The main point is that evil and good exist side by side in a fallen world. And there must be patience on the part of believers in trusting that God will eventually deal with evil. Right? But we also need to come to terms with the fact that God does take a slow approach in dealing with evil. He's not a helicopter God, right? Flying in the rescue. Though we would wish that. Now, I do acknowledge that God does sometimes act fast. And we've seen it in testimonies of miraculous healings or unexpected financial blessing, right? Or like uh, dramatic relational reconciliation. It happens. And I know some of us are praying for exactly these kind of breakthroughs in these 40 days. And we are personally praying along with some of you for that. But I think that in our church environment, we have come to assume that God usually works fast. That his normal pace is quick, instant. At very least, I, I feel that we tend to pray that way. You know, when I hear, right? And I think that this parable is to make us kind of like realize that there is another dimension to the way God works. Now, you know the verse in Mark 11, which says that we just need to speak to the mountain and it will be thrown into the sea? I've always had a problem with that verse. I find it very, kind of like, why is it there? You know? Uh, how do you pray with a straight face? Like, it sounds very far-fetched, you know? And uh, when I was thinking about this sermon, that verse came to mind, and it dawned upon me, right, that actually, Jesus never gave a timeline for when exactly that mountain will be thrown into the sea. We can't just impute, assume that it will be sudden, like immediate, like, you know, you tell the mountain, move and the mountain will just move right that's the picture we have in our head right we forget that actually there is a long slow process called erosion and that is also a process in which mountains are removed think of the grand canyon okay it's an average depth of about 1.2 kilometers deep Fair-sized mountain. Ah. And you think, how long did it take for that to get carved? Millennia. Do we have the patience for millennia? In the same way, right, a survey of human history shows that God has worked over hundreds of years to overturn, to erode systems of sinful injustice. Right, God slowly undid slavery in many parts of the world, in Europe, and uh, America, and in Africa. Uh, or we think of the long mis historical mistreatment of women. Think of, it was Pastor Fergus who pointed out in one of his Deuteronomy sermons, talking about you know, laws and how they come to be, that uh, marital rape was only legally codified in most of Europe, right? You know when? Uh? 1980s, okay. Yeah. In America, it's even later, okay? 1990s. 
how's that for slow? Very slow. Okay. Uh, when the Bible was written, you know, women were considered not persons in their own right, but as property. And it's taken, uh, you know, thousands of years for us to kind of get a point like, okay, yes, everybody is created in the image of God and deserves human dignity. And in some areas, we might still struggle with that. So God is patient in working in undoing the effects of sin on our world. But we tend to be short-sighted and impatient, right? We prefer instant gratification over slow growth. And we give up easily when we don't see results. For example, I find it hard to pray for our nation and its governance. You, you know, you pray for like integrity in the justice system, uh, in the judiciary, in you know, the political system, and other instruments of government. Honestly, it feels like an insurmountable mountain, like a fairy tale, right? And I think this has given me new eyes to see that we need to be able to approach these mountains and pray. And I'm challenged to remain patient and faithful, even if I do not live to see it thrown down in my lifetime. Of course, we hope that it will be. But it's like, can we remain faithful and patient in wearing away at that mountain and trusting that God is doing a work of erosion? I mean, it would be nice if it's an earthquake. But we take erosion, okay? Right? Uh, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we are living in a time of God's patience, so that people have the chance to realize that they need to change their ways, which is what repentance really means, uh. Okay, so we've established that God is good and in his goodness, he is also slow so that people have time to change. And now we come to the final point that is God is just. And that means that there will come a point in time where the chance to change is over. God has promised that evil will be dealt with decisively one day. Verse 41 says, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the final judgment when God's rejection of wickedness will be public and final. Okay, and we're going to kind of like get into that now. But before that, I think that it's needful to say this up. Uh, that this parable is not about predestination, which is whether some people are born doomed from the get-go. It's not, I mean, which is to say, right, once you're sown a weed, you know, do you grow a weed and remain a weed forever and that's your, kind of like your fate? Or like once you're sown a wheat, you know, that you grow as a wheat, you harvest it as a wheat and you remain a wheat forever. That's not what this parable is saying. Okay, let's not read that into it. In fact, uh, I very much believe that we have been given freedom to choose our hearts. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. 
And so this shows, right, that it is possible to change your course. And there are many other such passages in Scripture to support this. So this, this is my position now, okay? But since this passage I'm handling touches upon final judgment, uh, there are a couple of rabbit holes that I like to go down here and, and raise a few issues up. Okay, the first rabbit hole one yeah, is on the nature of hell itself. Oh, you laugh. Nervous, is it? Nervous laughter. Okay, now, let's think about how is hell popularly depicted? Fire, brimstone, burning, right? Uh, and this is true. This parable itself does talk of, fire, of a fiery furnace in verse 42. That's what it says. But it's also described elsewhere as an outer darkness. And the question I ask is, so which is it? If it's a fire, you know, how can it be dark? Like when something burns, it produces light, right? How does that make sense? How, how do you kind of like reconcile both? And so, right, it turns out, I don't know why this is more, not, not kind of like more well-known, that a majority of commentators and theologians, they hold the view that these are, these biblical images of fire and darkness are, symbolic and metaphorical, okay? They're just very vivid ways of describing what happens when we are finally and completely removed from the presence of God. And they're not meant to describe a literal reality of burning. In fact, to take it that way would be a mistake. Okay? <laughs> Let me give you an example, all right? Because uh, I think we need to be very careful about taking biblical imagery uh, as literal. And uh, the most famous example of when the ch uh, church has mistakenly took an inappropriate literal interpretation of scripture would be Galileo's case. How many of you are familiar with that? No, 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 not, not earth is flat. Um, yes, earth is the center. So what happened was this, uh, Based on several scriptures, one of it is like Psalm 113, you know, which says from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the Lord's name is to be praised. So this is like the sun rises and sets, right? And then also Psalm 104 says that he set the earth on his foundations and it can never be moved. Ha, huh, earth cannot move. So they took that and they made it an absolute and undisputed fact that earth was stationary in the center of the earth, uh, of the universe, and the sun and moon orbited around it. And uh, they made it a doctrine. And they persecuted Galileo for 20 years of an honor for heresy because his observations and his calculations said that it cannot be. You know, the earth orbits the sun. I think that that is an example of how we need to tread with care with recognizing symbols and metaphors in scripture and not ascribe meaning that is not meant to have. Okay? Now, the second point, uh, issue I would like to talk about this is the justice of hell. Oh, the question actually is this, uh, is hell fair? Doesn't it seem a little bit disproportionate to punish someone for all eternity 
over wrong things that he did within a limited time span, right? How is that just? How many of you have kind of like had that question before? Okay, I'm, I'm glad God. Hey, you. I mean, like, are we too kind of like scared to ask these kind of questions? It's something that has bugged me for a long time. And uh, if it's ever bugged you, I, I hope that this is helpful. Okay, let me ask a question now. Do we think of hell as primarily something that God does to sin, imposes on sinners? Or is it instead a culmination of a person's own freely chosen life path going on forever into eternity? In other words, right, can we think of hell as something that people do to themselves rather than something that God does to people? Romans 1 talks about how God gives people over to the wicked desires that they have chosen, right? Uh, and even here on earth, we know that someone who is self-centered, self-absorbed, self-pitying, self-justifying is a miserable person to be around. And they themselves are deeply miserable and blinded. And so we kind of extrapolate that into eternity. And conversely, right, the people who are the nicest to be around are those who are, you know, the people who are the most life-giving are those who are outward-looking, who are God-centered, you know, who are unselfish and considerate. And so I think a point I'm making is that um, the culmination of a self-centered, a selfish life is eventually you reach a state where you can no longer experience goodness and love and joy anymore. And that's what we call hell. Hell is what happens when God finally gives us up to our heart's desire to go our own way, to be the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. So when we are finally and truly completely out of his presence and reach. If we want to escape from God, there comes a point where God allows us to get what we want. I like the quote C.S. Lewis here. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly that. There are only two types of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. No soul who seriously and consistently desires joy will ever miss it with joy being God, you know? To those who seek, fine. To those who knock, it is open. Any man may choose eternal death and those who choose it will have it. Um, I think great divorce has been uh, very instrumental in shaping uh, my, I, you know, this idea for me. And uh, I kind of like recommend it a lot to people, but people find it hard to read. You know, I was like, my, my dream actually is to do a book club on, on, on it. Lah. So check him out. He, he talks a lot about the nature of the choice. And I mean, you might think like, why would anyone choose hell? Uh, he makes a very convincing, he lays out very convincing kind of like ex scenarios where uh, someone would actually make that choice. All right. And that's what I think this book goes into. Uh. Uh, but, I'm too, but, but it's kind of told as an allegory and as a story. Uh. Uh, 
So I'll like give you another quote. This one is from uh, J.I. Packer. It says, and he says this, uh, Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshipping Him, or without God forever, worshipping themselves. Like I said, a self-centered existence. And those are our two choices. Now, you think that uh, I sound very chun and I quote Packer. I confess that actually I didn't read this book. I found it on Tim Keller's website. But I was like, oh, okay. So I'm just putting this up so that y'all don't accuse me of preaching heresy. Uh, Jaran Sasat, you know, like, hey, Packer. Okay, if you don't know Packer, he's like, he was the general editor of the ESV Bible. Uh, so he's legit, okay? So, so, so he can say this, you know. Don't say I'm making things up. Um, and yeah, I was, I, was, I was surprised that um, quite a lot of, in fact, most people that I've, I've kind of like theologians that I've dug in to hold this view. Uh, you know, Keller is one of them. Jonathan Edwards is another one. I was surprised at that. So yeah. So the idea, hell is fundamental to our understanding of human freedom. And that is, it is because of our ability to choose that is an option. So uh, I hope that this has been helpful and kind of like given you something to chew on. And uh, I hope that we can be the kind of church that is able to handle these kind of things and not shy away. But uh, I think we need to move on for now. How are we doing for time here? Oh, okay. So the final settling of accounts is in the hand of, hands of God and it is God alone who decides our final destiny in light of what he knows about the life plans that we've chosen. And so the last thing I'd like to raise is that we need to make sure that our idea, our understanding of God when he judges is not of someone who is petty. Sometimes in popular, in popular culture, right, God seems quite petty. He's depicted as petty, right? So we need to make sure that our idea of God is not that he's petty or vindictive or malicious or arbitrary, or capricious. What does that mean? Uh, it means like, suka -suka la, you know, like you wake up and you feel like, okay, you know, I feel like doing this, so I just do. A uh, good example would be like, you know, the Roman gods, they're depicted as being very capricious, like they wake up and decide like, okay, I feel like making life difficult for the humans, let's do it. We need to make sure that we don't impute these ideas onto God, whether, even subconsciously, okay? It goes back to my first point that we need to trust that God is thoroughly and utterly good. So let me tell you a story. Okay. Most of you know that uh, we have a dog. Okay. His name is Otto Fritz. And uh, here's a picture of him. It's actually a glamour shot. Okay. This is after uh, he came back from a very expensive haircut. More expensive than my haircut. Okay. We took photo. Lah. And uh, the first and last time we ever sent him to that, that place. Lah. It's so expensive. Now, some of you know his origin myth. And I call it that because uh, it, the story was told to us, but we have no way of really knowing how much of it is true. But it's a good story. So he's a rescue dog. Okay? And the story we were told by the vet who rescued him was that Otto was found by someone outside the gate tied up in a black garbage bag. Okay? Someone had abandoned, like, you know, bagged him and abandoned him. And uh, that he had an infection in his mouth 
and it was actually, they had maggots in it. Uh. So, uh, very poor thing. Uh. So the person brought him in and tried to like clean him up and nurse him and uh, feed him, but he wouldn't or couldn't eat. So after a few days, a day or two, uh, you know, this person uh, brought him to a vet and said like, I think he can't be saved uh, and so paid to have him put down. But the vet realized that uh, he could be safe. So, you know, he treated his mouth, uh, extracted most of his teeth. So you can see, like, he's got one pathetic tooth and his canines. That's, that's kind of about it. But uh, saved him up. Contacted a dog rescuer. And so he connect, and connected with us. Uh, and that's how we got Otto. So Otto has been, you know, a part of our family. Much loved for over a year now. I think 14 months, yeah. So, you know, I love my dog a lot, right? Right? And those of you who know me will know that I would never in a million years, and I'm using hyperbolic language here, one day wake up and decide, okay, I'm done with Otto. I'm going to bag him up and throw him back out, right? That's not possible. It's not conceivable, right? Now, Actually, do I have such capacity? Actually, I do. You know, like capacity is that I have the hands. I have the garbage bag. I possess the physical capability of using my hands, of picking the bag, bringing it auto, bagging him and throwing him out. I can carry him out, right? Physically, I can. But from a characterological point of view, is it possible? No, I cannot. That, that, that option is not, I mean, that, that possibility is not open uh, from a character point of view. And why am I telling this story? Uh, it's because I was thinking about it, right? And I got this realization, right? That is how we, God is like to us. That's how he views us. Uh. He will never get up one day and decide to cast us out shut the door in our faces. It is not within his character to do that. And I think that we really need to have the security and assurance in this, that he is not an untrustworthy or harsh or um, capricious kind of master. As he says in Matthew 7, if you who are evil can give good gifts to your child, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? And so likewise, you remember the story and think about if Tay, with all her flaws and shortcomings, is unable to treat her dog in that way, to get rid of the dog just like that, how much more can we be secure that our perfect Heavenly Father will cherish and keep us? So the real moral of the story is this. Uh, um, get a dog. It helps you think about God and uh, theology. You know, I think we like to think theology is very like up there. No, no, no. Theology is very useful. It shapes how we think about God, right? But on a serious note, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those of you who have dogs. <laughs> but seriously, uh, when it comes to the question of the final reckoning, and the final reckoning actually of everyone that we know and we love, everyone, this is something that I, I, truly and completely believe in and hold on to, which is this, that a perfectly 
loving, just, and good God will do the most loving, just, and good thing. And this is something that has been a great reassurance and comfort to me personally when I think about the matters of judgment and destination. This is really where, um, where I've landed personally. And uh, I suppose with this, I guess I'll ask uh, Dr. Fuchs to come up and close us. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Sorry, Nora was talking to me. Yeah. You know, church, I, I even sense as we were preparing for, for this sermon, and, and, I, and I heard Athelia share to me her points, and I've been praying for all of you. And it's no small thing because we are in 40 days. And today's sermon, my, the, the things that you heard today and the parts of the Bible um, that is being opened up for you today may be quite different from the other kind of voices that you are hearing throughout these 40 days. It's not that one is more right than the other. I think it's like two ends of attention. You need to hold both intention. As Athelia said, sometimes God does act decisively, quickly, and instantly, we have all seen that before. And then sometimes, he chooses the path of gradual erosion over tens of years, over a whole lifetime, over hundreds of years, some systemic things in nations, sometimes over thousands of years. And so we do need to have the weaponry, the spiritual weaponry and, and fortitude to both pray for the now, but also pray for the not yet. To pray in the present, but also to pray for our future generations. We also need to have the spiritual fortitude to go the long haul even though all you see are very small chips at the mountain that you are praying about. I want to invite us all to close our eyes because in this season of 40 days, I believe and know in my heart that many of us are praying for things that are deeply meaningful to us, people who are very, very close and special to us, dear loved ones, or maybe we are praying over situations that are difficult. Some of us may be feeling hemmed in on every side and we need relief and that relief, we, we can't wait 400 years for that relief. We, are, we need relief now. And then there are some things we are praying about and we're saying, God, I have done so many rounds of 40 days praying about this one thing and other new prayer items have come and gone and come and gone and this one prayer item from the first year we did 40 days until now I'm still praying about it how long oh Lord will you make your people wait and the Lord is saying I am working I never stop working and every year that you have prayed over this, I have been working. I'm using you and I'm working and I'm chipping away at it bit 
by bit by bit. And I want to release this word over every single one of you. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. And I want you to have hope today. For those of you, you've been praying for the same thing for years, for tens and twenties and thirties of years. I want you to hold on to that hope because God is doing something. And it might happen at the end of that person's life. It might be something that's going to happen in our children's generation. It might be something where our grandchildren are going to see the fruit of and this is going to be a church where we plant seeds so that our great-grandchildren can enjoy shelter. This is that kind of church. So every single one of us, I want to invite you to rise to your feet right now. In a moment, we are going to worship. We're going to worship and as we worship, I want you to declare with your mouth, with your words that God is good, God is just, God is righteous and I will trust Him. No matter how long it takes, I will trust Him. But first, I want to pray for you. All hands open before the Lord. I want to minister to you right now. Father, you see, you see the cry of our hearts. You see the things we are wrestling with. You see how long some of us have been praying, have been seeking, we have been asking and knocking and seeking and we've been waiting so long for the door to be opened, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. I want to pray two things. Number one, Lord, I'm asking, open the door nonetheless. Lord, open the door nonetheless in the name of Jesus. As much as I have asked, as much as I have sought, as much as I have not, open the door, Lord. Show mercy and pour out upon your people abundant grace when you hear our prayer. But my second prayer, which is equally important to the first, is this. I want you to pray this with me. Lord, give me patience to keep asking. Give me patience to keep seeking. And give me endurance to keep knocking and knocking and knocking. Because every time I knock, every time I knock, I know I am eroding away at the mountain and I know my God is at work and I know I know because I trust in my Lord and my, I've seen my Lord work quickly I've seen my Lord work slowly I trust in Him and I will keep on knocking Lord give me the endurance to go all the way with you because I believe in you when you said those who endure till the end will being saved. And so, Lord Jesus, I want to speak a blessing over every single one of our prayer items in these 40 days. Lord Jesus, may you take every single one of them. May you cause them to accumulate, Lord God, even as your people gather and our cries go up before you, Lord God. Father, I pray that the accumulation of, your pray of our prayers will rise before you. And we don't know how long it will take before it rises before you like an incense at your, in the presence of your throne room and so that you will respond. But Lord, we pray 
nonetheless. And every day we want to add. Every day we want to accrue that the prayers will gain weight. They will rise before you and you will hear. You will act. You will be decisive. You have been decisive now. You will be decisive in the very end. And so, Lord, we, your people, your Christians, your SIBKL at Sungai Bulo believers, your bride here, we will be faithful, we will be patient as you are patient. We will trust in you as you have shown yourself trustworthy. Give us now the strength to go all the way. Bless us, Lord Jesus. Lord, I will sing. I choose to sing. I declare today and my declaration is my song. I sing, God, you are good. You are good and I will trust in you forever. Now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His countenance to face you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen. Come on, church, let's praise. Let's give God praise.